Hello and welcome to the Curator Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we have a selection of some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week. This week, we speak with US pop duo Sophie Tucker about their new album. We grew up very differently. Sophie grew up listening to more international world music, and I grew up probably more US-centric. And when I heard her playing Bossa Nova music, I just had a vision, basically, that this would be awesome with dance music. Plus, News Round turns 50. It's an institution in the UK. Virtually everyone that grows up in the UK is aware of News Round. And now we've probably got three generations. We now have children watching it today who say, my grandparents saw it when they were young. And that's a phenomenal achievement. And I think it shows how much News Round is valued and is needed for children. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a conversation between Andrew Muller and Radek Sikorski, a member of the European Parliament who formerly served as Poland's Minister of Defense between 2005 and 2007 and as Foreign Minister between 2007 and 2014. Here is Radek with more on the situation in Ukraine. First of all, I heard the uh, Ukrainian uh, defense minister that they are prepared to um, for a Russian assault with a um, tactic of avoiding major battle and spreading out so as to avoid being decapitated. But I still thought that perhaps they would lose the offensive, the, the invasion, and then win the guerrilla war. And I also wasn't sure whether all their brigades will actually fight. And I've been surprised uh, en place on both counts. Their preparation was good and, uh, and they're fighting like, uh, like heroes. And uh, Putin's army has been defeated in the first phase of the war. Uh, they have not conquered all of Ukraine like they planned. They haven't changed the government and they have lost about a third of their land invasion force. Are you perhaps less surprised by what we have started to learn of how Russia's military has behaved itself in the areas it has occupied? You, of course, have seen a version of the Russian army fighting up close when you were covering the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan as a journalist. Are we just witnessing the immemorial Russian way of war being waged again? Yes, they are, inex they are uh, not professional and, uh, and it cost them in the past. You know, I, I read recently a very good uh, account by a Soviet conscript in the first year of, uh, of the Afghan war when they invaded on, the, on Christmas Day in 1979. And um, initially they were even welcomed uh, and then after a year of this looting and murdering, uh, the country turned firmly against them. Um, you know, we also have folk stories in my part of Poland of being liberated by the Red Army from the, from the Germans in 1944 and 45. And stuff, uh, rapes and, and pillage uh, happened then as well. So it's not just a crime, it's a mistake. The other thing that surprised me is a much better reaction of the free world to the uh, uh, Russian invasion this time. 
On that subject, there are reports that the EU is this week going to propose banning Russian coal imports. Uh, Do you get the sense, though, that these sanctions are yet hurting Putin sufficiently to cause him to change his mind? Does the EU need to go further uh, and even call upon European citizens to make some sacrifices uh, to their own comfort? Well, sanctions that work, and particularly if they are to work quickly, always carry a price. And for Poland, banning Russian coal or or, or gas or oil will be costly because we are closer to Russia and therefore to the sources of those things and therefore actually proportionately more exposed than even Germany. But, you know, I'm willing to pay more for the heating of my house if this uh, deprives Putin of his uh, war chest. I didn't expect us to block his central bank reserves, but we have. That's deprived him of between three and four hundred billion dollars. That's real money. But what is most urgent and most important is to quickly deliver uh, Ukraine ammunition and new types of weapons, because this war will be decided in Ukraine. Are we, do you think, or I guess any Western interlocutor past the point of actually attempting to speak directly with or reason with uh, the regime in Moscow? And in particular, I'm interested in drawing on your experience as a long-serving Minister of Foreign Affairs for Poland. You met with Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, many times. Do you get the sense that things have shifted fundamentally in the Kremlin? Are they past the point of being reasoned with? In diplomacy, you sometimes have to talk to and deal with psychopaths and and mass murderers. Um, You know, the West dealt with Stalin at our expense, actually. My experience is that when people want a deal, they'll find a way to communicate that. It's just that Putin doesn't smell defeat yet, and he will only make Ukraine the kind of deal that Ukraine can accept when his second offensive has failed. There is another context in which Europe, you could argue, is being challenged by autocratic or autocratic adjacent regimes. We've seen two elections over the weekend, as of course, you know, one in an EU country, Hungary, another in a non-EU country, Serbia, which have returned to office and by thumping margins, uh, fairly right wing populist authoritarian leaders uh, in the shape of Orban and Vukic. Have we learned anything about about, you know, overindulging regimes of this sort from what we're now experiencing in Ukraine? Well, we mustn't uh, um, exaggerate our influence on the internal politics of other countries. Um, They all prove that national socialism works. It worked in the 1930s and it works now, but we know how the movie ends. Um, uh, But... Democracy is a system in which government, uh, the government can lose. And yes, if you grab uh, all of state media and most of private media, if you uh, use state resources to, to shamelessly bribe your own supporters, and if you use um, you know, software such as Pegasus and other methods to uh, hound uh, journalists and the opposition, then yeah, then... The, the, the playing field is skewed so much in favour of the government that the opposition has little chance. And just finally, if we contemplate your own native Poland, do you perceive that the last six weeks in Ukraine have caused any waning of enthusiasm for, you know, 
semi-authoritarian nationalist populism in Poland as well? It should, because these uh, nationalists and populists are invariably, invariably have a soft spot for Putin. Uh, so in that sense, Orban, Salvini and Le Pen have been discredited, which should give uh, Poland's ruling party pause for, for thought. Uh, and equally, they are appealing for the unity of the West and for the strength of uh, EU, the EU and NATO. Well, if that's the agenda, then they should uh, come into compliance with the judgments of ECJ and, and, and stop trying to pack Polish courts. Um, but I, sadly, I don't yet see any results uh, or any evidence of such a reflection. On the stack this week, I've welcomed Jason Cowley in the studio. Cowley edits The New Statesman and just published a book called Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England, an examination of contemporary England through a handful of key stories. It really has been a period of... Um extraordinary upheaval in the UK, but beyond the UK, in Europe and, and the US and elsewhere. But I'm, I'm focusing in the book on the UK, but particularly on England. Just think about what's happened here in recent times. We had a Scottish independence referendum in 2014. David Cameron and the coalition government went into the 2015 general election and Cameron's Conservatives won a surprise majority. He was there, he had pledged to hold an in-out referendum on the UK's membership of the EU. He won that majority. He held the referendum in 2016 and they voted to leave. A huge shock for the, for, the, for the elites, particularly what you might call the kind of liberal metropolitan elites in London and the big cities. And then we went into kind of three years of what were called the Brexit Wars, where the country became deeply polarised. And then just as we came out of the Brexit wars, when Boris Johnson won the 2019 general election, on a rather crude pledge to get Brexit done, we went straight into the pandemic from which we're just emerging. So it's been, an, it's been a period really of permanent crisis. And the various crises have, have exposed the cracks within the framework of uh, the United Kingdom. Scotland voted, um, a majority of people in Scotland voted to remain, as did a majority in Northern Ireland. A majority in England and Wales voted to leave the EU. So you can see the divisions within the kingdom itself. And all the time sort of bubbling away has been this sense of English national reawakening or an enhanced English sense of self-consciousness. And the book began really, um, I was alarmed and unsettled by the polarisation in the country, particularly through the post-Brexit period or the, the vote for Brexit and I wanted to explore what, what George Orwell called the social atmosphere of the country. I didn't want to be judgmental or polemical. And so I decided to sort of explore some of the big political themes by telling stories about events over the last sort of 20, 25 years. And I think that's what I like about your book. It's, it's, it's very much non-judgmental. You know, you talk about people with different views, but without being polarizing. I mean, you just look at even at the British media, uh, which is it's becoming more and more polarized. We talk about the US, but I feel that here it's also becoming, right, since Brexit as well. It's deeply polarized and it's only made worse by social media, mm. a kind of hostile, accusatorial environment on social media, on Twitter and elsewhere. But what I've tried to do is take a step back, travel, talk to people, report and revisit some of the defining moments of recent times 
in British history. I begin really with Tony Blair's election in 1997. And Blair, you know, Blair, in a speech in 1995, he said, I want this to be a young country. You know, we will be a young country. I mean, England and Denmark are, are probably the two oldest nation states in Europe. I mean, there, there was a recognisable English identity before the Norman Conquest in 1066. How can it really be a young country? What Blair meant, I think, is he wanted to embrace a kind of more open, plural, optimistic, progressive, modern British identity because he kind of wanted to ride the wave of the new globalisation. And, and you know, there was a lot of optimism around Blair and New Labour in the early years. But after 9-11, um, the world darkened. Blair took the UK in, in, to war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I just wanted to explore some of the unravelling that followed that decision to go to war, you know, the American-led war in Iraq and Afghanistan, which really had devastating consequences, I think. And one and another thing I like about the book, because I feel that, you know, it's not only negative, the sense of Englishness. I mean, you even mentioned some kind of positive cases, like just look at the World Cup with, you know, Gareth Southgate, where people felt proud to use the English flag, which I know in the past was controversial for, for different reasons. So there's also some kind of uh, glimmers of hope in there, oh, right? Sure, yeah. Um, Englishness, really, since the Act of Union of 1707, which was really the creation of the modern British state, Englishness has been lost within Britishness. The English were encouraged mm. to think of themselves, first and foremost, as British. And English identity was somewhere, was submerged within within the larger, the larger framework of, of, of the British state. And of course, it was associated with empire and colonialism. But in recent times, as the UK has fragmented and a sense of British identity, which was particularly strong during the Second World War and its immediate aftermath, has weakened. And as a sense of kind of Scottish independence has strengthened, the, the movement for Scottish independence has strengthened, the English, it's been forced upon an English a reconsideration of who they are. And it's not entirely negative, quite the opposite. There's, there's many positives, I think, in, in trying to understand, you know, what England is and who the English who the English are. And you mentioned football. And in the when I was growing up in the sort of late 70s into the early 80s, there was a kind of negative association around the England football team. You know, the flag of St. George, people were suspicious of it. The England team used to carry the Union flag rather than the flag of St. George. There was a kind of unpleasant far-right faction attached to the England national team. All of that has begun to change in recent times, and particularly last summer during the Euros, which were co-hosted in England, we saw this kind of wonderfully reawakening of a new, progressive, positive English identity led by uh, Gareth Southgate, the England manager, and his young multiracial team, and I thought it was a really, a really positive period during the football during the summer. And, you know, I, I welcome that. And Southgate himself, the England manager, is an incredibly sophisticated thinker on these issues of identity, particularly national identity. And he wrote an essay just before, you know, how many football managers write essays? He wrote an essay just <laughs> before the tournament called Dear England, in which he spoke about his own patriotism, his pride when he played for England as a player, his grandfather had served in the Second World War. He was a monarchist. He believed in the military. But at the same time, he recognised the activism of his young players. He supported the Black Lives Matter movement. So he, he, he showed that you can 
both bring together tradition and diversity in a way that shouldn't really be problematic, but is for so many modern British politicians, particularly English politicians, who are scared to go near the English question. For some reason, it worries them, particularly the Labour Party, the left. It worries them. Patriotism, the flag, the national, for some reason, it unsettles them. It need not. I agree. I agree. And, and, and again, even staying with politics and, and on the positive side of things, I, I can see that as an outsider as well. That, I mean, look at Europe, the far right parties, they've been there for years now, sometimes even in coalitions. I felt that, of course, in the UK, you had some sort of presence, but quite minor compared to other European countries. That says something about the country as well, right? Yes, we had um, the emergence of, a, of UKIP, which was a kind of um, right wing national populist anti-EU party led by Nigel Farage, you know, fantastic communicator, whatever you think of Farage's politics, you know, very, very smart communicator. And actually, I speak to him in the book, but we've never had a neo-fascist movement of any significance in this country or neo-fascist party, as we've seen in France with the National Front or some of the Scandinavian countries or indeed Eastern Europe. So somehow we've been able to negotiate this, this terrain or territory without unleashing sort of far-right fascist forces. And I think that's, I think that's admirable. And it also suggests there's, there's a more open debate in this country. But, you know, if you close down its subjects, such as immigration, and um, some, of the, some of the forces against EU membership or the causes of, uh, of why so many people wanted to leave the EU, and they weren't necessarily anti-Europeans who chose to leave the EU. There are other forces in play. If you try and suppress these arguments, they erupt in unpleasant ways. And um, you're right, there isn't, there isn't a significant neo-fascist party in the UK. And that's great, I think. Even you know, if you it look is. at the Scottish National Movement, it's a powerful nationalist movement. But under the leadership of Nicola Sturgeon, it's benign. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a form of civic nationalism. It's not a sinister right-wing nationalism. You are listening to The Curator, Monaco 24, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And this is the Foreign Desk Explainer this week. Andrew Muller explains the likelihood of Vladimir Putin and other senior Russian officials being put on trial for alleged war crimes in Ukraine. There is an amount of dispute over the coinage of the legal maxim to the effect that justice delayed is justice denied. It is attributed to William Gladstone, Francis Bacon or William Penn, among others, and at any rate one or indeed all of them may have cribbed it from some or other time-misted scripture. Whoever was responsible would be somewhat despondent at this week's proceedings at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, where the trial has begun of Ali Mohammed Ali Abd al-Rahman, a former commander of Sudan's infamous proxy militia, the Janjaweed. The counts of the charges against Mr. Al Abdul al-Rahman are as follows. Count 1. Intentionally directing attacks against the civilian population. Abd al-Rahman, known and feared by the Nomdigur Ali Kushaib, denies the 31 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity on his indictment, as he is entitled to do. He will receive a fairer hearing than was granted to any of the Janjaweed's many victims. Count 2. Murder as a crime against humanity, concerning 51 persons listed in Annex 1 
who were killed in Kudum, Bindisi. But the crimes for which Abid al-Rahman is answering were committed nearly two decades ago, during the Darfur War of 2003 to 2004. The warrant for his arrest was issued by the ICC in 2007. He turned himself in in the Central African Republic in 2020. Even after all that, Abid al-Rahman is nevertheless the first person to stand trial for the plentiful and well-documented atrocities committed in Darfur early this century. All of which is by way of foreshadowing that those clamouring for justice regarding Russia's crimes in Ukraine, a perfectly reasonable thing to want, would be ill-advised on form to hold their breath. There are obviously cases to answer. Indeed, so completely beyond law and reason is Russia's rampage in Ukraine that it is both easy and accurate to characterise the entire enterprise as a crime and one of monumental proportions. But within the onslaught are incidents which seem about as open and shut as these things get. The wholesale demolition of Mariupol, which six weeks ago was home to 430,000 people. The apparent executions of hundreds of Ukrainian civilians by Russian soldiers in Bucha and elsewhere. This is not special operation. This is not military objects. This is civilians. They've been shot in the head with a tight hands behind their back. This is genocide of the Ukrainian population. These have been denounced as war crimes from points up to and including the White House. You may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter, you saw what happened in Bukhara. This warrants him, he is a war criminal. The wheels of justice have begun to creak. The International Court of Justice and the ICC were already looking into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe has established an expert mission. The UN's admittedly ludicrous Human Rights Council has set up a commission of inquiry, although given that the UNHRC's current membership includes Russia and China as well as Ukraine, harmonious cooperation on that that one seems unlikely. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has now promised that the EU will send investigators. Some EU leaders have raised the stakes further still. Both Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez and Poland's Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki have accused Russia of conducting genocide, which is about as serious as an allegation gets. But what are the chances of senior Russian officials, perhaps even Russia's most senior official, ending up in the dock? In a word, slender. Where the ICC is concerned, the big obstacle is that neither Russia nor Ukraine, nor, while we're up this way, the United States or China, are members of the court or recognise its jurisdiction. And the ICC cannot try defendants in absentia. It might be possible to establish some sort of special tribunal similar to those which have prosecuted crimes committed in Sierra Leone, Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia during the 1990s and which have tried some significant political leaders, including former Liberian President Charles Taylor, former Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic, former Republika Srpska President Radovan Karadzic and former Rwandan Prime Minister Jean Kambanda. It appears from what the uh, President Kamala read today that the Chamber understood the case we presented to them and that that was a case uh, of betrayal by Akiyezu and a case of abuse of power. 
Not only did he fail to protect his people, he took active steps and participated and committed acts of genocide. However, the operative word there is former. It is desperately difficult, logistically and politically, to feel the collars of serving leaders. Milosevic was not helicoptered to The Hague until he was out of power, and certain of his domestic political opponents wanted him out of the way. Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir was still in charge when he became the first sitting president to be indicted by the ICC in 2007, and though overthrown in 2019, he is still yet to be deported to The Hague. Even when leaders, or former leaders, can be brought before the beak, proving them guilty is no sure thing. The chain of command from president to foot soldier is a long one even when it is provably intact, and it often isn't. In 2019, for example, the ICC dismissed charges against former Ivory Coast president Laurent Gbagbo after prosecutors failed to link him conclusively to post-election violence that left thousands dead in 2010. Realistically, the best that might be hoped for in terms of visiting justice upon Putin and his cronies might be inconvenience and humiliation, compelling them to confine their retirement travels to Chad or Syria for fear of blundering into the same embarrassment as former Chilean despot Augusto Pinochet, who in 1998 was arrested in London by British police equipped with a warrant from a Spanish judge. No escape chant demonstrators outside the London clinic where Augusto Pinochet is being held. The 82-year-old former Chilean dictator is recovering from back surgery. Spanish authorities requested his arrest. They want to question Pinochet about his role in ordering executions and disappearances in Chile. But there would be something to be said for even an ultimately symbolic indictment, as a rebuke to Putin and a caution to other leaders that overstepping boundaries of behaviour in wartime might come back to bite them eventually. Currently awaiting trial in The Hague by the Kosovo Specialist Chambers and Prosecutor's Office is Hashim Thaci, former president of Kosovo and former senior officer in the Kosovo Liberation Army. And he, for quite some time, was regarded by the West as one of the good guys. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Also this week I spoke with US pop duo Sophie Tucker. I always loved their music. Their upcoming album, Wet Tennis, is out on the 29th of April. They've told me more about the album and why tennis was a big theme for them. Yeah, I mean, it's totally Sophie's brain and my brain, and they're so different. We have different interests. We grew up very differently. Sophie grew up listening to more international world music from all parts of the world. And I grew up probably more U.S.-centric, but when I got into dance music, a lot of my favorite music had other languages, a lot of sort of talking on tracks. And when I heard her playing bossa nova music when we met and all in portuguese i just had a vision basically that this would be awesome with dance music and like this would be such a cool thing to connect and part of the wet tennis logo is two tennis rackets 
and it actually is a Venn diagram. So there's sort of Sophie's side, my side, and then the overlap is right where Sophie Tucker lives. And I think it's both of our influences coming from all over the place. And Amadou Miriam was, is a good example of an artist that we both loved separately before we met. And I had known them because Mike Snow did a remix of one of their songs, Sabali. And Sophie knew them because she just knew them. <laughs> and that's sort of like a kind of a good example of where our interests cross, even though they're very separate. Sophie, tell me about the connection with Brazil. Of course, I'm Brazilian. I have to ask this question. And I was very happy as well that there's some a little bit of Portuguese in the first track of the album as well. I noticed that. That's super cool. basically an international school it's my whole life so i was born in germany i lived in seven different countries and i was constantly in these really really intense international communities like the high school i went to was 200 kids from 100 countries and the music that people were listening to as a result was like really really diverse and i remember always being really attracted to a the brazilian like students and my friends who were brazilian i just felt like instantly connected with them and also with the music. And I was like, I don't know why, but I have this draw towards Brazilian people and Brazilian music. Everywhere I go, no matter where I am in the world, the people that I'm connecting with are Brazilian and the music that I love the most is Brazilian. So I started listening to Brazilian music all the time. And then in college, I was taking voice lessons. And <laughs> I remember she had this book of like classic jazz songs and I would come in and sing all the songs. And Eventually, I realized I didn't want to sing in English anymore. I was like, the Portuguese jazz music for me was way more interesting, way more sexy. I was like, I'm only singing Portuguese now. And at a certain point, I was like, I have no idea what I'm saying. I just love this music so much, but I'm singing and singing all the time. I have no idea what I'm saying. So I figured I should go study Portuguese. So I studied Portuguese and then I just fell in love with learning it. And my professor, her name is Patricia Sobral. She's still at Brown. She was so inspiring and I just like fell in love with learning the language. And so then I moved to Brazil and when I was in Brazil, it was like even deeper, you know, I really, I was like, oh, okay, now it all makes sense. I've been attracted to Brazilian people and Brazilian music my whole life. And now that I'm here, like, I feel like this is my, my soul home. And when I had to leave to go back to college, I was like, you know, I had so much saudade. I just wrote in Portuguese to like make me feel like I was back there. And ever since, I mean, I was planning on moving back to Brazil after college and then Tucker convinced me instead to join this band. It's your fault, Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a part of me. I'll still, take, I will take credit. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a part of me still that like, I just crave to be there. And I have so much love for Brazilian people and Brazilian music specifically that is kind of unexplainable, but it's really real. <laughs> 
UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. Last Sunday, Sri Lanka's entire cabinet, aside from the president and his sibling prime minister, resigned from their posts. Yesterday, President Gotabaya Rajapaska's ruling coalition lost its majority in parliament amid growing unrest in the country over an economic crisis. A shock ferry, the Sri Lankan author, joined Georgina Godwin from Colombo, the capital. Let's rewind the clock to two and a half years ago when this government came in on a huge majority. 6.9 million voters voted for the president and they had an unheard of 5-6 majority in parliament. Now, there was this huge fund of goodwill there and I remember just before they came in, they invited um, lots and lots of members of the industrial and business community to a meeting. I, I, I Obviously, I wasn't there not being a business person, but I remember looking at the pictures and thinking just about anyone who was anyone in the business world was there. After they came in, and they were asked to help, after the government came in, very sadly, almost none of those people were invited to take part or to help or to advise. So I think that the seeds of the problem began there. There were a lot of disgruntled people, but more to the point, I think the government made some very bad mistakes along the way. Um, the tax regime, for instance, I think they they lowered the taxes, they widened the tax in the in the hopes that it would widen the tax net and bring more people in. Sadly, that didn't happen. The government before them had been very stringent and had raised taxes, so it was a very popular and populist measure, but it didn't have the effect that the government were hoping for. The the, the taxes simply dried up. Um, then there were very very silly mistakes like the fertilizer ban. Overnight, they banned fertilizer. Now, Sri Lanka is an agricultural country. We depend on our tea exports of tea and rubber and for the internal market, coconut. And once you took away fertilizer, uh, the, the growers simply lost 20, 30, 40 percent of their crop. It, it, it was a good thing in principle, but it should have been done over a long five to ten year period, phasing out artificial fertilizer, bringing in organic. So that is a big mistake. Um, but the final thing, that the final straw, I think, was the, the power crisis. Even as early as last November, the people in uh, the people in the know were advising that we should have a one-hour power cut every day. This didn't happen. We carried right on to the bitter end, not cutting power, not saving. And because we're in something of a drought at the moment, very sadly, uh, we have eight, nine-hour power cuts now at the moment. So I think that's when the the the, the the crowd, the people, all those people who voted for them felt really, really betrayed. And, and of course, you see the scenes that you, I'm sure, all seen on TV. Mm. I mean, Ashok, Sri Lanka's been through so many crises in the past. Tsunamis, civil wars, the bombings of the churches. How is this one different? Well, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, this government came in. One of the reasons for their huge landslide victory, I think, was a very, very well-orchestrated social media campaign. It's something that we in Sri Lanka are a little bit behind everybody else, and I don't. It, it literally caught all the other political parties 
napping. And so they were very successful with social media. And that meant a lot of young people. Now what's actually happened is that the majority of people rioting on the streets, for want of a better word, are young people. So the, 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 the thing that brought you in is the very thing that is destroying you. So it's, it's social media. And, and it's a word of warning, I think, to any future government that you can't mess with social media. It's such a powerful tool, uh, but it can destroy you just as easily as it can raise you up. Mm. And do you think things are going to get worse before they get better? Uh, very sadly, yes. I mean, even if we go to the IMF this afternoon, it will be some months before any kind of plan is put in place. And, and it's also quite difficult to do this because you have positioned the IMF as your enemy all these months or for the last couple of years. And, and you had a governor of the central bank who steadfastly maintained we're not going to the IMF, we don't need to go, we don't need to go. Well, he resigned yesterday. And so now we have to do a complete U-turn. Now, one of the problems here is that we are quite short of uh, economists, good economists, that who can take our case to the IMF. Because as you know, the IMF are tough negotiators. We need tough people on our side. We simply don't have them because we have succeeded in alienating many of those brilliant economists that Sri Lanka has. So we're, we're, we're really stuck here. Mm. And therefore, I cannot see this thing improving overnight. I mean, what might the solution be? Uh, well, there were lots of... Um, uh, I, I think um, lots of different things. Um, first of all, but the most important thing to bear in mind is that 6.9 million people voted for them. Sri Lanka is one of the oldest democracies in Asia. So the will of the people really does matter. Now, if you were, uh, if you, uh, were, were to ask each and every one of the 6.9 million voters, are you behind the government? I think you'd be hard pushed to find even 100,000 voters there. Mm -hmm. so, so I think the people really do want to change. But the problem here is that the mechanism for change is not there. One of the first things that this government did was to take away what is called what is called the 20th Amendment, which concentrated the powers in the hands of one man, the president. So there again, uh, and that was voted in by pretty much everyone in parliament. I mean, like a huge majority of, of parliamentarians voted, voted this amendment in. So we now actually, if one needs to do this legally, we need to repeal that amendment. Not easy to do. Um, that the government may have lost their majority, but there are still a lot of MPs behind them. Mm. And it's a question of persuading these people that this 20th Amendment is, is a killer, literally, and it needs to go. Uh, that's one thing. But over and above that, there are lots of other people arguing that it's too late to wait for legalities, that we need to get on with this and somehow... Uh, somehow have have a change a change up there. Mm. Uh, and just finally, before we go, Ash, like you were talking about, you know, well, who who replaces the the uh, e economic or finance minister? You have a, a fantastically high profile in Sri Lanka. You're brilliantly politically connected, and you've got a maths degree from Oxford. What about it? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for, for offering me the post, but, but it really is a poison chalice. I, I think, actually, one of the genuine reasons is that we Sri Lankans, we're individualists. We never pull together. We're not like the Indians or the Chinese in this respect. We're actually not very Asian in this respect at all. 
we do pull in separate directions. So even if you have, if one has a good idea, and the government has had many good ideas, for instance, uh, I, I, it would be remiss of me not to point out that they managed brilliantly with, with handling COVID. Uh, there were one or two hiccups at the start, but in general, we, we we have very, very good COVID figures compared to the rest of South Asia. However, they had millions of critics criticizing every move. So it's really very difficult to, to effect anything here. And, and as for replacing the government, were they to go, that is a huge question also, because we have tons of people who are very vocal in their criticism. But if you ask them to, to get together in parliament and produce uh, a single a cohesive strategy. They wouldn't be able to do it. They'd all be squabbling. There is so much distressing news on television, but do you think it's important that young children should know about it? And if so, how should it be reported? One man who can tell us is Louis James, the editor of Newsround, the BBC program that has been digesting current affairs for children aged 6 to 12 for the last 50 years. He joined Georgina on The Globalist earlier in the week. Well, initially it was an experiment. There was a, a gap in the, um, in the children's uh, broadcasting schedules. At that time, uh, there were only three channels in the UK, uh, three linear channels, and there was children's programming in the afternoon, but there was a short gap between programmes. And um, some of the people who worked at the BBC Children's Programming Department at the time thought that um, children should be informed about what's going on in the world um, in a way that made sense to them. And so they began what was essentially a very short experiment to see if there was any interest in it. And 50 years on, and Newsround is still going, and now we're um, uh, on a website, on social media, um, on uh on uh, digital catch-up services and still on linear TV mm. all those years later. I mean, and do you think that young children should be aware of distressing events? And if so, how do you give it to them? To 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 how do you report appalling news to to young children in a way that is easily digestible and and not trauma traumatizing? Um, I think that's probably one of the one of the most challenging aspects of the job that we do at Newsround, and I think it's probably the one we give most thought to. Um, I think that a lot of thought goes into um, when you've got distressing events, you know, particularly like what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. I think the key thing is, um, are you enabling children to have an understanding of, of that event without distressing them? Um, what we know is that children are aware of global events. They're aware of distressing events, be it terror attacks, be it war be it, you know, most recently with the with the COVID pandemic, they're aware of these things. And often it's an information vacuum that can make them most distressed. So what we will try and do is we'll give careful thought to language, um, particularly to imagery. So if you watch a news round uh, report, it will have very different um, uh, pictures to what you'll see on most news channels or most news websites. Um, the imagery is different. We'll make use of graphics and animation where pictures are very distressing. Um, I think the big difference, and, and this is not just about not distressing children, but also enabling them to understand things, is that we don't assume any knowledge from children. So we will always explain basic concepts and basic language around the story. Um, to give an example, you know, Ukraine is a country in Eastern Europe. Russia is its neighbour. 
we'll explain what invasion means, we'll explain basic terminology to children. I think that those are the those are the big differences from what we do and what most news outlets, most news organisations would do. And I wonder, though, given the age range, uh, is it possible to, to, to report in a way that appeals to a six-year-old but doesn't patronise a 12-year-old? It's difficult. It's difficult. And, of course, even, even, within, even within that age range, you've got children with different uh, levels of, you know, academic development and personal development. So, yes, it's really difficult. I think um, being a news magazine programme, I think you can't always satisfy every age range, every developmental range in that group. What we try and do is give a mix. So, you know, for the older end who are beginning to explore their place in the world a bit more, we will have in-depth coverage of of anti-racism protests, of climate change, you know, as they're beginning to explore their 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 view of the world. Um, but for the younger for the younger children, we will have animal stories. We will have stories um, that uh, employ a degree of toilet humour to them. Um, and I think it's probably that mix that's really important. That was established fairly early on in Newsend's history. I think having that mix of stories is really important. So there's something there for each age range. And, and uh, finally, just the significance of Newsround's 50th anniversary. Um, yes, well, it's um, it's an amazing achievement, I think. Um, uh, I think, you know, for your listeners who aren't in the UK, it's an institution in the UK. You know, virtually everyone that grows up in the UK is aware of Newsround. And now we've probably got three generations. We now have children watching it today who say, my grandparents saw it when they were young. And that's a phenomenal achievement. And I think it shows how much Newsround is valued and is needed for children. And I'm, I mean, it's a very useful training ground for young reporters. I mean, some of the people, some of the big names on television now started their career there. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, you know, um, internationally recognised journalists like Krishnan Guru Murthy, like Julie Etchingham um, have have appeared. And, you know, even now, the um, BBC reporters like James Waterhouse in Kiev has appeared on Newsround um, answering children's questions about the war in Ukraine. I think it's a really good training ground for two reasons. I think, um, firstly, um, I think um, the writing for children is a real skill. Um, uh, and, it, and it teaches you to write in pithy sentences and also to get to the point very quickly, which is a useful skill for any journalist to have. And the second thing is you really need to understand stories in order to simplify them for children, because that simplification process, it's quite easy to be very reductive or to eliminate key information. And I think it's a useful skill for any journalist to have is to be able to really understand the story first, not assume knowledge and then work from that basis. I think that's why it's become such a breeding ground for journalists in the industry. You are with The Curator. And now, a different take on a classic breakfast staple by the founder of London's 26 Grains Restaurants. Hi, I'm Alex Healy Hutchinson from 26 Grains. I'm the founder of the cafe and now restaurant. We have two restaurants in London, one in Covent Garden and one down in Borough Market. 
the recipe I'm going to be telling you about today is probably what's kicked off the whole restaurant concept to begin with, which is a porridge recipe. So I first fell in love with creating porridge beyond the home after spending a year in Copenhagen. And I was really inspired by the different tastes and textures of the grains and they really heroed the different types of grains in a way that I'd never experienced before, having grown up both in America and in England. And then there was something really unique that they did, which was to put butter on top of their porridge. The recipe that we use in the restaurant is a five grain porridge. And I would really encourage anyone at home making their porridge to explore a little bit outside the traditional oats and really understand the different taste profiles of grains such as rye and spelt and barley and the different textures. But how we make it is we use a mix of oats, rye, barley and then my favorite grain as a part of this mix is malted wheat so the malted wheat is slightly sort of fermented or umami taste I describe it like little bursts of marmite and so there's a little bit of saltiness there a little bit of tanginess there and it matches really well against the creamy oats and the rest of the bowl of porridge If you can't get hold of all of those grains, the one that I'd say which is most exciting to try is the malted wheat. And you can get that online if you can't get that in your local supermarkets. And then cook it slowly, slowly. The key with porridge is slow. Oats have this brilliant, amazing component to them, which is beta-glucan, which is the creaminess component to them. And it's also the slow-releasing energy component to them. And what you do, you can either soak your oats beforehand or you can cook them at a low and slow heat. And then when they start to come together and you've got your malted wheat in there, chuck in a big pinch of flaked sea salt. And then what you're going to do once it all comes together is get a good piece of butter, salted butter. And you're going to take that and put that on top of your porridge. And you'll watch as it sits on the top of the porridge, it'll start to melt. And you can add some lovely brown sugar And then it starts to sort of create this caramel pool around your bowl of porridge. And this is something I look forward to every morning, every time I go into my restaurant. And then it's a really great base in which to build on whatever perhaps is in season. So in the winter when we've got fewer fruits, lots of nuts, hazelnuts, walnuts, etc. Or in the summer, perhaps something a little bit more vibrant like blueberries and cinnamon. And that's the way that I love to start the day and I love to share a bowl of porridge with my family and with my colleagues and with my friends. So I hope you enjoy your porridge the way that I've described it. And finally, Monaco on Design Extra. We head to York to see the architectural restoration project that has transformed the medieval Clifford's Tower. Clifford's Tower is set on top an 11-metre-high grassy mound that today is peppered with vibrant pops of colour as the daffodils come into bloom. Made of magnesium limestone, the ancient monument was built in 1245 by Henry III as part of the monarch's northern royal palace. Since then, the tower has sat as a folly within someone's garden, stood watch within the boundaries of a prison complex, and in the 20th century became a historic monument under the watchful eye of the conservation charity English Heritage. In recent years, visiting Clifford's Tower was perhaps a little uninspiring, due to it being a roofless ruin gutted by a fire in 1684, and little in the way of communicating the chequered history of the site. 
when you came into the tower, because it was roofless, it was a little bit sort of damp, underwhelming. You could go up a couple of spiral staircases up to a wall walk, which was just around about a metre wide, I suppose. And on a busy day, people would literally shuffle walking round the wall walk, not really aware of what they were seeing, not understanding the history of the, the tower. Hugh Broughton there, the architect whose eponymous firm won the bid and have transformed the landmark, improving access both physically and intellectually at Clifford's Tower. Our idea was to create a roof deck over the tower, supported on four big timber columns, allowing people to come up onto the roof, spend much more time here, for it to be much more easy for them to move around, enjoy the spectacular views over the city of York. And then, from the underside of the roof deck, suspend steel walkways, which then allowed people to get at bits at first floor level, which they hadn't been able to access for 350 years. My name's Jeremy Ashby, and I'm the head properties curator at English Heritage. Being able to open up Henry III's toilet on the first floor, which no-one has been able to get into, apart from people with ladders, uh, since 1684, that's, that's absolutely lovely. But I'm still just looking at the tower after conservation. I think the historic fabric has never looked as good as it does now. The new design celebrates the evolution of history. It does not reconstruct portions of the tower or freeze the ruin at a particular moment in time. Clifford's Tower isn't a building in use. It is a monument. It is a visitor attraction. And we wanted to retain that sense of place that comes with a ruin. If one were to rebuild it in some way, one would be choosing a moment in history which we may not even understand very well and running the risk of almost kind of disney it. And that was absolutely not the intention here. It was to be very honest to the kind of raw, robust nature of these stone walls and create something which respects that, which in a way reflects that in that you can see how everything's made. The timber structure, you see how all the components get joined together. You can understand instantly how the roof deck is supported. And then there are these steel walkways. Again, the structure is what sort of defines their appearance. You can see the, the beams of the structure, you can see the hanging rods, you can, it's a metal walkway, the balustrades are formed of uh, stainless steel mesh. Everything is very elemental. Standing on the ground floor of the landmark today, a large aperture carved into the middle of the timber roof deck draws your eye upwards and to the great outdoors. Shadows shift across the walls of the ruin throughout the day. I've always really liked framing views of the sky and being able to be inside and see the rain come in, see the clouds moving across the sky, so that there's this continued connection with nature which the building has had for the last three or four hundred years anyway. On top of the timber roof deck are ample benches to sit and marvel, something that was lacking in the site previously. I was struck by this invitation to linger, rest and reflect. It's almost an experience that you have at n not just historic monuments, but many cultural venues, art galleries and, and so on, that you must constantly be on the move. But actually it's quite nice to just kind of like stop and have a look, and especially up on this roof deck where you're looking out at York Minster. You know, it's a bit of a shame if you had to sort of like just trundle on round and, and not be able to stop and enjoy that view. 
as well as the timber construction giving access to new areas of Clifford's Tower. Part of the redesign has included a design overlay to communicate the castle's history to visitors too. Up on the roof deck here we've got a number of concrete plinths which tell you about the view you're seeing and how it's changed through history. And then within the tower itself there's actually a new soundscape that's been introduced that will tell you about different periods of the history of the tower spoken by people from York. It's Thursday, 20th of April, 1684. Oh, it's proper grand working here, I can tell you. The darkest of all dark days have descended upon me. Jeremy Ashby, Head Properties Curator at English Heritage. We needed to get the right balance between explaining this quite complicated piece of architecture but also telling the really important human stories that are associated with the site. York Castle has been an important place in the history of the city and in the history of the whole of the North and actually really in the history of the whole of England. Many millions of people have passed through it. We don't really know all of their stories, but there are some stories that we do know, stories that are either describing normal days or sometimes some very extraordinary days, some tragic and violent days. And so to get some of those stories told in the voices of people that would actually sound believable, that was part of the challenge that we really wanted to to address. I kind of really like the idea that, you know, people of today are telling you about the history of the tower so that this there's a, a phenomenon which I find myself kind of constantly coming back to at the moment which is this idea of a foot in the past and an eye on the future you look back at the past you learn from it and that helps to propel you forward for Monocle in York I'm Maylie Evans Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>